0: We do thank you for your amazing grace. You are the King of glory. You are the ruler of this universe, Lord, and we are your creatures. You, you created us, but Lord, we have all turned against you. We have all, through our sin, separated ourselves from you. We are deserving of the death penalty. We are by nature deserving of of your wrath, Lord, but we thank you that through Jesus we can be made alive. Thank you that you give us, through faith in him, eternal life, that you give us a hope and a confidence, Lord, because when we look at the world around us, we see much that, that grieves our hearts, that, that causes pain. Lord, we look at the political turmoil that is going on around the world, and our, our nation is experiencing some of that as well. We look at just racial divides in our nation and elsewhere. We look at so many people who are struggling with poverty, uh, struggling in marriages, struggling just even to find their sense of life. And, and they're searching in places that can never ultimately fulfill. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of this type of world that you give us hope. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, I lift up the, the leaders of our nation, the leaders of other nations around this world, Lord, that you'll give them each wisdom That you give them humility and guidance on how they should lead, Lord. we pray for uh, your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray for your people, uh, believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus in this nation and around this world. And especially for the leaders of churches, Lord, that that we will all be standing firmly in your truth. And that all people who claim the name of Christ will be living in response to your call to be salt and light To the world around us, Lord, you are the sovereign ruler, and may we submit our lives to you. We pray that you will do a powerful work of revival and awakening in our community, in our nation, and around this world. And now, Lord, as we open your word together, please uh, work in our midst. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. I want to start out this morning by asking you a Bible trivia question. And uh, you don't have to answer out loud. Just think about how you'd respond in your mind. Here's the question, though. What do you think is the central theme of Jesus' ministry? What, what's the central theme that Jesus teaches about in his ministry? And I'm going to give you multiple choice. Again, you don't need to answer out loud. Just think in your minds. But here's multiple choice for you. Do you think Jesus' main theme was heaven and hell? The kingdom of God? Salvation or loving others? Just think about that in your mind for a minute. Which one of these do you think is the central theme of Jesus' teaching? Well, most scholars would say that the central theme of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God. And if you question this, if you're wondering about it, just read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and you will see how frequently Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He loves talking about the kingdom. He he talks about the arrival of the kingdom through his ministry. And then he compares the kingdom of God with a mustard seed, or with a treasure buried in a field. On top of this, he explains how we can enter the kingdom with faith like a child. And then he sends out his disciples to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the entire world. Jesus loves talking about the kingdom. In fact, he talks about the kingdom, whether it's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. These two phrases are synonymous. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talks about the kingdom 85 different times in in those three books that that contain his teaching and his life and his ministry. He loved talking about, about the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God really was this overarching framework For his entire ministry. Now, today, the message uh, is titled Game of Thrones. I confess I've never actually seen the TV show Game of Thrones, but I understand that it's about this this battle for supremacy. It's about who is going to rule. And it's a very epic drama um, and a huge struggle, but this points to this idea in the kingdom of God of, of who is going to rule. Who is going to be on the throne? Is it going to be God? Or are we going to say, you know what, God? We want to do things our way. We're, we're, we're going to be the ones on the throne. We want to assert our own sovereignty here rather than submitting to you. That is a, a key question for all of us to figure out in our own, own lives is who is on the throne of our lives. Who is in the driver's seat? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 3. We are in a series right now called Finding Our Place in History. And it's also known as Finding Our Place in His Story. And what we're doing in the series is understanding that the Bible is not some collection of disconnected parts. Instead, there's one main storyline that runs from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. We are tracing that storyline out in order to understand how we fit into God's story. And if you were follow along with this series in the Jesus Storybook Bible this week, if you would like to, to just have a follow-up from today's message, you can read pages 116 to 135 of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now one of the things we have to understand as we are talking about this idea of the kingdom of God and this game of thrones is the idea that humans have always struggled with who is on the throne. And we certainly see it in today's world where people would much rather do what they, they think is right in their own eyes than, than what God says they should do. And I think about how this plays out in so many different ways. I think, for instance, of a professor of philosophy at New York University named Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist. And when he was explaining his atheism, he said, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. A little bit later, he he talks about this idea of a, a cosmic authority problem. You know, a lot of people have authority problems, not just with God, but in general, because we as humans don't like to be told what to do. We want to be the ones calling the shots, even from a young age. We want to be the ones controlling our own destiny. We don't like to submit to other people. And this is not a new issue by any means. It's not something that just started like in our generation or a couple generations ago. It's something that is as old as humanity is. I mean, back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they they decided, you know what, God? Uh, We don't really want to submit to your rules here. Uh, We're going to try things our own way. And that started this downward spiral of humanity saying, you know what, God? We're going to be the ones on the throne. We're going to be the ones claiming um, our own sense of sovereignty here in our lives. And so began the game of thrones where humans asserted their sovereignty over and against God. But when this is taking place, when we are the ones trying to put ourselves on the throne and being in ultimate control, things don't function very well because that's not the way God designed the world to work. This last week, my daughter Tahila turned five. That's her, some morning this last week on her birthday, she woke up, that's about 10 minutes after she woke up. I just put her on the counter, put on this birthday girl little pin, and then she said she's five years old. You know, she's growing, and she loves to assert her sense of independence. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's only my kid who does this, but um, when, when, when she doesn't get her way, she definitely lets the world know. Because she likes to do things her way. And that's a little bit like all of us are. But imagine they take my now five year old daughter and plop her in the driver's seat of a car in downtown Milwaukee. And if somehow she was able to depress the gas pedal while attempting to steer that car, and imagine that during rush hour in Milwaukee, all the other cars there were piloted by five year olds as well. What would happen? It would be chaos. I don't think any of us would really want to be there to exactly witness what takes place. because There are going to be crashes right and left because you should not be putting a five-year-old who's ill-equipped to drive a car. You shouldn't be putting him in the driver's seat in the first place. But That's essentially what happens if we are on the throne of our lives. If we are the ones trying to control our lives, it's kind of like a five-year-old trying to drive a car. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's destined for failure. And that's why there's a lot of chaos and mess. In our world these days, (laughs) down through human history, I mean, you see as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, it started this process of chaos and just all kinds of messiness and brokenness. Now, as we've been seeing throughout the series, the Bible storyline basically has four main scenes. You have the creation, where things were good. You have the fall, where sin entered. And then most of the Bible is about God's process of redemption. And then you have the ultimate restoration of all things. And we have to understand that the goal of redemption It's to bring the world back to the way it's supposed to be, with everything under God's rule and enjoying His blessing. This is what God's goal is in redemption. And through the Old Testament, we see that God is working out that plan of redemption through the nation of Israel. God said that Israel would become a great nation. They would become a light to the other nations, showing what it means to live under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. This is one of the reasons God put Israel in the promised land in order to, to again, be a demonstration to the rest of the world of, you know what, this is what it is like to walk with God and to submit to His rule and to enjoy His blessing and to experience the abundant life that He gives as we are being restored to that right relationship with Him. Now today we're picking up the story in the book of Judges. Last week we saw that Israel was settled in the promised land. Judges picks up with what is next, and we see that that it was not pretty because there was a royal struggle to submit to God on the part of the Israelites. There was a cycle uh, going on throughout the book of Judges, a cycle that began with sin, rebellion against God, people forgetting about God, prioritizing other things, putting themselves on the throne. And after sin would come military defeat, then the people wouldn't like being defeated militarily, so they'd cry out to God and repent. And then God would send a deliverer called a judge that through the power of God, that deliverer would overthrow the enemy oppressor and give Israel a time of peace for a while. And we have to understand the judges in that period were, um, they were essentially military leaders um, who under the power of God Would allow them to overcome the enemies and then to establish peace. And we see in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, just a a little snapshot of what this cycle looks like. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read uh, Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. These are, those are other gods that they are serving. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Canez, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenez died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, because they did, uh, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And so we see the cycle. I mean, they're walking with God for a little while. They're experiencing peace, and they turn away from him, worship other gods, forget about God, and then military defeat. And then they call out. God sends this judge, a deliverer, to 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 give them uh, peace and vitality again. They live in peace for a while, and then they rebel again. And this is a cycle that plays out over and over and over through the book of Judges. And a great summary statement is found in the very last the very last verse of the book, Judges 21, verse 25, that says, In those days there was, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this points to this ongoing game of thrones where God was supposed to be the one on the throne guiding the dealings of Israel in their lives, but instead they were asserting their own will, saying, you know what, God? Not your will, but ours be done. We're going to do things... Our way. And this sounds, you know, quite a bit like today. Even though these things were taking place thousands of years ago, that's still so relevant to what we experience today, where we live in a, people where, uh, in a world where people are basically doing what's right in their own eyes. Where, where they say, you know what, I have the right to live how I want to live. No one else can tell me how to spend my money or how to schedule my time. Who are you to tell me whether or not I should live with my boyfriend or girlfriend? who are you, to tell me how um, I should use my sexuality or what language I should use or what morals I live by. I can do whatever I want. And so basically when, when people have this type of mentality of doing whatever is right in our own eyes, it's, we're saying, you know what, I'm the one who's on the throne. I'm not submitting to anyone else. It's this big game of thrones that, that started long ago and persists into this world. Now, I want to turn us over to 1 Samuel chapter 8 right now. So if you're following along in your Bibles, I encourage you to just flip over a few pages. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was a judge. He presided over a a time of relative peace in Israel. He was also a prophet of God, God's, uh, God's spokesperson there. But also he was very highly respected in Israel. But the Game of Thrones continued as we will see. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, We're going to read verses 3 through 9 and then jump ahead to the end of the passage. 1 Samuel 8 uh, chapter 3. And we're going to see the Game of Thrones going a new level here. It says that Samuel's sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will rule over them will claim as his rights. And then for the next many verses, Samuel explains to the Israelites, if you have a king in the way that you want... These are the things that are going to happen. It's going to be very oppressive. He's going to take the best of your land and the best of your people to serve him and the kingdom. And, and so he warns them all, all these different things. But jumping ahead to verse 19, it says the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, He repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So we see here this game of thrones is now going to a new level as the Israelites demand a human king. And in demanding this human king, the way they demanded it shows that they were rejecting God's kingship. They were rejecting God's kingship. But the problem was not simply that they wanted a king. That that actually wasn't the, the problem here. Because even back in God's law, in Deuteronomy and in other parts of um, early in the Old Testament, God had made provisions for a king over Israel, but that king, according to God's stipulations, was not to rule independently of God, but instead in submission to God. So it is clear to everyone that God is still the ultimate king on His uh, His eternal throne. Let me refer us just to Deuteronomy 17 briefly. Just where in the law, God is making these provisions for a king. Deuteronomy 17, picking up in verse 18. God says that when the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And so to me, this is really profound here that God is preparing the way for a king at some point in the future of Israel. But this king is to be a model of what it looked like to be devoted to God. And he's not to rule independently of God, but instead, I mean, write down for himself all the words in God's law. I mean, can you imagine that? But, but I mean, I think that's a really cool thing just because it helps the king internalize them. And then day after day after day, he has to be reading those words for himself so that he can then apply them to his life and lead Israel in the way that God is calling him to. And so the problem here is not that, that Israel was, um, was asking for a king because God had already made provisions for this. The problem was that in their demand for a king, they were turning their backs on God. And that is clear uh, several times in this passage, but I, I just want to point us to verses 19 and 20 again in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They said, We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So they said, We want to be like all the other nations. This again sounds quite a bit like our world today. I mean, it's kind of like this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Of, you know, hey, our friend's just got a new car. Hey, maybe we should get a new car too. Or, you know what, he has an iPhone 7. I deserve an iPhone 7. Or, you know, my friend's parents let him go to the party. Why can't I? I mean, here you have the Israelites. You know what, all the other nations have a king. We should have a king too. But in this mentality, they are essentially rejecting God. And they aren't really concerned anymore at all about being a holy nation set apart from God. That, that's the purpose for which God created them. Be set apart as a light to the world. But here they aren't worried about being a light. What they want to do is just blend in. Be like everyone else. And, and so, so they're demanding a king. And the real irony I think, I mean it's, it's, it's sadly humorous what's going on here. Because God had already promised to provide for them the exact things that they're seeking in a king. They wanted peace in the promised land. They wanted military victories over their enemies. They wanted a king to help guide them and rule. And God had already promised all these things for them in his covenant with them. But they turned their back on the covenant. They turned their back on God and said, God, we want to do it our way. They were playing the game of thrones, which is a game you should never play with God. But God allowed them to have a king. He said, okay, you guys want a king? You can have a king. And so the king, first one was Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And I describe him as the people's king because he has the qualities and the characteristics that people would naturally want to have in a king. Saul was tall. As if being tall helped, but that was a big part of his description. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. I mean, if there was an election in Israel for a king, which that's not usually a kingdom's work, but if there was an election, odds were decent, he would win the popular vote because he had those qualities that humans typically would look for in someone that they were revering. But he had significant problems in that, that he quickly and frequently compromised in his devotion to God. He, he, he was impulsive. He was selfish. So God eventually took the kingdom away from him and handed the kingdom to the next king of Israel, King David. And King David I would describe as God's king. In fact, God's word describes David as a man after God's own heart. And as David ruled, he didn't rule independently of God, but he ruled in submission to God's authority, just like God called him to in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And so as David ruled, Israel grew and prospered. I mean, they grew in size. Their borders were more secure. They grew in power in the world. They grew in wealth and prosperity. They were experiencing many blessings under the rule of King David, who was ruling under the ultimate throne of God. David also wrote many psalms. I mean, I know that for many people, the book of Psalms is is so special to them. David recorded many of the psalms that we enjoy so richly. I mean, I think of psalms of praise, like when David writes, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He also wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. King David was the one who wrote the most famous psalm of all, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want very next psalm psalm 24 he wrote who is he this king of glory the lord almighty he is the king of glory so david wrote many psalms of praise to god he also wrote psalms of lament and he gives voice to our laments how long lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me how long must i wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart how long will my enemy triumph over me Just one example of a lament psalm from King David, giving voice to the sorrows that we face in our lives too. King David was the one who wrote the words that Jesus quoted from from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even in the midst of this lamenting, David proclaimed trust in God. For instance, Psalm 13, which started out, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? The psalm ends with these words, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now David, in all his heart for God, he, he was certainly not perfect. He had some spectacular failures, which if you know his story, you, you probably know what I'm referring to, of adultery and then murder. Um, those, those are pretty bad. But he also repented. He turned back to God. and He ended up becoming the standard by which all future Israelite kings would be measured. Now, when David died, his son Solomon became the next king of Israel. And Solomon, I would describe it as a divided king. He had many strong suits. He was very, very wealthy. He, he was also incredibly wise, given a supernatural wisdom from God that, that people came and sought out from the ends of the earth. And he wrote down his wisdom in the biblical books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. So, so his influence persists and nourishes us even spiritually and in, in here in the 21st century. King Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem for worship of the Lord. And his prayer over the temple and dedicating the temple is just beautiful. Let me read for you a portion of it just to show his apparent heart for God. It comes out of 1 Kings chapter 8. I'll read the beginning of the prayer, and then I'll read near the end. Um, if I were to read the whole thing, we'd be here for quite a while. Um, let me just read part of it. It said, Then Solomon stood up before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. So this is how he started. He said, Lord, there's no one like you. You alone are God. You, are, you alone are the one on the, thro- on, the, on the throne. Here's how he ends the prayer. He says, praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has fa- failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him and keep his commands, decrees, and laws he gave to our ancestors. So we see that Solomon had these great aspirations. I mean, he he proclaimed this tremendous heart for God. He was proclaiming the greatness of God. Remember, he was a divided king. His heart was not faithful to God. And in defiance of God's law, he married a lot of women, a lot of hundreds of women from other countries. And this is not an issue of, um, of, of, of being against certain ethnicities. What it is an issue of, of is worship? Because God knew that if a king or any Israelite marries um, people from other countries, Odds are good this person is going to end up worshiping their gods. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He, he married hundreds and hundreds of women from other countries. I mean, quite the womanizer there. And I guess as king you have that ability. But then they led his heart astray. He was not faithful to God. He ended up worshiping all of these other gods. And so what ended up happening is that the divided king, Solomon, led to a divided kingdom. Because Israel and Judah, soon after Solomon died, divided into two parts. Or Israel divided into two parts, which were Israel and Judah. Israel was the one to the north. Uh, the ten tribes to the north were called Israel. But then two tribes to the south, that included Jerusalem, was Judah. And so the, these were two nations. No longer were they this holy nation to be set apart for God. I mean, they they abandoned that long before. But now they were actually divided between two. They, they fought among each other. They they lost sight of what God had called them to. And if you were to read 1 and 2 Kings and 1st and 2 Chronicles, you would see the ups and the downs of this ongoing Game of Thrones. And unfortunately, the leaders of Israel, the kings, led Israel and Judah farther and farther from the Lord. It's interesting if you trace in Kings and Chronicles, trace the ups and downs of these kings. In Israel, the northern kingdom of those ten tribes, it was mostly down. Because if you follow the progression, there's usually a summary statement about each of the kings. And in Israel, it went from evil king to evil king to evil king to evil king. (laughs) This this nice downward spiral away from God. Judah did a little bit better for a while. They they went good king, evil king, good king, evil king, kind of like that. But basically, you have this game of thrones where God is being forsaken. He's being forgotten. Uh, Just rarely are people acknowledging that he is the ultimate king. And you have humans just making a huge mess of things. And I want to just help us to understand just what is going on here in Israel. Because we have to understand that leaders do have a significant influence over the people whom they lead. I mean, the people have a responsibility as well. But leaders really shape what is going on among whoever is following them, and I want to illustrate this through a movie clip from "Remember the Titans." Uh, Remember the Titans. It's not directly a spiritual movie; it's it's a football movie. Um, but I think it illustrates well what was going on in ancient Israel, where because as the leaders went, so went the nation, and as a football, as leaders of a football team go. So goes the team. So I want you to just take a look at this this movie clip. And as you watch, just think about the influence of leaders on those around them. All right, man, listen. I'm Gary. You're Julius. Let's get some particulars and just get this over with, all right? Particulars? Yeah. No matter what I tell you, you ain't going to never know nothing about hey, me. Hey, man, listen. I ain't running any more of these three days, okay? Well, what I got to say, you really don't want to hear, because honesty ain't too high on your people priority list, right? Honesty? You want honesty? All right, honestly? I think you're nothing. Nothing but a pure waste of God-given talent. You don't listen to nobody, man. Not even Doc or Boone. Shiver, push on the line every time, man. you blow right past them. Push them, pull them, do something. You can't run over everybody in this league. And every time you do, you leave one of your teammates hanging out to dry. Me in particular. Why should I give a hoot about you? Huh? Or anybody else out there? You want to talk about a waste, you the captain, right? Right. Captain's supposed to be the leader, right? Right. You got a job? I have a job. You been doing your job? I've been doing my job. Then why don't you tell your white buddies to block for Rev better? Because they have not blocked for him or for plug nickel, and you know it. Nobody plays. Yourself included. I'm supposed to wear myself out for the team? What team? No. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look out for myself and I'm going to get mine. See, man, that's the worst attitude I ever heard. Attitude reflect leadership, Captain. So we have this football team that, if you know the movie, was in a significant amount of chaos. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, which is evident just in this conversation going on right here. Why? Why was everyone doing what was right in their own eyes rather than playing as a team? It's because attitude reflects leadership, Captain. Gary, the, the white guy on there, he was one of the captains of the football team. But the way that he was leading was not unifying the team. It was, it was a bit of a, a self-centered, selfish way of leadership, and that was being reflected down through the rest of the team because attitude reflects leadership. As the leaders go, so goes the team. It's the same thing in ancient Israel. As the kings went, the nation's leaders, so went the nation. Now, again, the people still have a responsibility as well. But what was happening in ancient Israel is the kings were usurping the authority of God. People, there was this Game of Thrones going on, massive Game of Thrones, where where. where People were forgetting God. He's the one who's really on the throne, who should be the one guiding what's going on in Israel. But instead, the leaders and uh, on down through Israel were just saying, oh, we're going to be on the throne now. We're not going to submit to God's will any longer. And this has dire consequences because we have to understand the Game of Thrones is not really a game, and it shouldn't be looked at as a game. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a TV show, it's not a football team. I mean, this is real life. And when we are battling God for who's going to be in control, we're really messing around with some of the core realities of the universe. Because God designed us to function in a certain way. And when we are are asserting our, our own sovereignty and saying, no, I'm going to do it my way. God, not your will my be mine to be done. What we're doing then is putting ourselves out of sorts with reality. And there will be consequences either sooner or later If we're not willing to submit to God. Israel and Judah certainly experienced this. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came in and attacked Israel, the northern kingdom, and took them off out of the promised land in exile. And then a while later, 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came into Judah, the southern kingdom. They destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried the vast majority of the people into exile. And we may look at that and think, wow, God's obviously not enthroned here. He would have protected them. Well, in reality, what we see over and over and over is that God allows for military defeats when Israel is straying from him, just as a way of waking them up. And so God has not failed in his promises here. It's not like God stepped off his throne or turned his eye the other way. He's behind this whole thing. We're going to see more of this next week as well. He, he's still fully in control here. Essentially, what's happening is that Israel and Judah is having a timeout for a little while to help them to try to learn some lessons about the importance of faithfulness to God. We have to understand God was always in control. He was always on His throne in this whole process, even when people weren't acknowledging Him. Now, to understand God's plan and what He was doing through all the stuff with the kings and this Game of Thrones, I want to point us back to King David. Because King David played a very pivotal role in God's plan for redemption. I want to point us to the everlasting king, what could be called a Davidic king who comes from the line and the standard of a model of who David is. Back when David uh, was still living, God made a promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God told David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this is quite the statement that King David's throne uh, down from his line will be established forever. Forever is a long, long time. But this is an amazing promise. I want to just kind of trace this theme of King David's everlasting throne down through, through Scripture to see God's plan of redemption. Jumping ahead to Isaiah chapter 9, this is a passage that we frequently read around Christmas time. You may recognize it, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born... will accomplish this. And so we see this this promise that a great king reigning on David's throne will be born. And we see again this promise of an everlasting kingdom. Now jumping ahead in the story to Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to a young girl named Mary and says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Here it's here again. I mean, promise that started a thousand years before Jesus is being fulfilled through the birth of this Christ child. We see another reference to it over in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Again, story of Jesus birth. So Joseph this is in the time of the census. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So Jesus is a descendant of King David. Now, fast forward another 30 years or so as Jesus is beginning his ministry. Listen to some of the first words that he says. It says that Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's what he's proclaiming. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is very clearly saying that, that he is inaugurating God's kingdom on this earth through his ministry. So we see, you know, Jesus, he loves the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is about bringing people back under God's rule and experiencing and enjoying God's blessing. This was the purpose for which Jesus came in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan to bring people back into a right relationship with God in the way that God created this universe. I want to just show a diagram that helps to explain what this looks like in our lives God is the ruler of the universe. He is on his throne, as you see in this picture. Um, It's kind of a rudimentary picture, but it just kind of shows you this idea of over the whole universe, God is always thrown. Nothing can ever dethrone him. Even if people don't acknowledge him as king, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. For us as humanity, we have a choice then. And it boils down to either we're going to submit to God and let him be on the throne of our lives, and kind of in the driver's seat that we're going to submit to him, or we're going to say nope. We're going to do it our way. We're going to be on the throne of our lives. It really boils down to one of these two choices. And on this earth, we do have a choice. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that when, when Israel got into the Promised Land, Joshua, their leader, said to them, "Choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve." We have a choice. We can either submit to God and experience His rule and His blessing, or we can try to do things our own way. Joshua says, "As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." And we can choose, at least for a time, to not serve God. It's not the way he designed us to live, but we can choose that way. But there will come a time when everyone submits to God because he is the king. It's written about in a number of places in Scripture, but one place is Philippians chapter 2. It talks about how after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave Jesus a name that is above every name. That At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at one point, everyone will bow before King Jesus. And the call for us, why Jesus came to this world, is to enable us to do that here and now. To begin to experience the the, the vitality and the joy of living in God's kingdom now. And that will continue on into eternity. So the question is, who is on our throne? Who is on the driver's seat of our lives? You now it's time, if, if we've been playing games with God about, well, I, I'm not really sure if I want God on my throne. I, I kind of like doing things my own way. It's time to stop playing games. It's time to say, you know what, God, I'm going to submit to you. I'll say it's not easy to do that because our world says, "Nah, it's fine for you to do things your own way. Our, our sinful nature says, oh, yeah, we like doing things our own way. It's not easy. Thankfully, God will give us the Holy Spirit to, to help, uh, help us conform our ways to Him, to submit to Him. It's not easy, but that's the call. And we need to depend on Christ's power working in and through us to help us to submit fully to Him because that's the way He designed us. We have to remember, again, attitude reflects leadership. Jesus, if we are submitting to him, is to be our leader. And look at his attitude in his, in his earthly life. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And to put God on the throne of our lives, that's our call as well, saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. That's a constant moment-by-moment, day-by-day type of mentality. God, not my will, but yours be done. And when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what he's calling us to do, saying, God, I'm submitting to you, King Jesus, not my will, but yours, be done. Now, as the world sees us doing this, it won't make much sense to them. But if we really see God for who he is and his kingdom for what it is, he will make all the sense in the world to us to live in this way with God on our throne. I want to close by referring to one of the parables that Jesus told about the kingdom. It's out of Matthew chapter 13. It's one verse, nice and short. Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven, which again is another way just to refer to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought this field. So imagine with me this picture. You have this person. You may have known him down the street for a while. Nice guy, relatively normal guy. All of a sudden he gets this crazy thing going on where he he decides, I'm just going to sell it all because there's something I want to buy. And he goes and he's just liquidating everything he has. And he's looking at this, maybe an heirloom he got from generations past. And he looks at this and thinks, you know what, that's really special. But yeah, I'm going to sell that too. And he sells everything he has and he does it with great joy. And the world would look on and be like, what in the world are you doing? But this guy is selling all these things with great joy because he's found a treasure that is worth so much more than everything he has at this point. And what is that treasure in this parable that Jesus is telling us? Parables do point to a spiritual truth. The treasure, Jesus says, is the kingdom of God. Then when you see God for who he is, and you see the greatness of living under his rule and experiencing his blessing, everything else in this world pales in comparison. So that's easy. To deny ourselves, take up a cross daily and to follow him. And there's great joy in that, in experiencing his rule and his blessing and following King Jesus. He came to give us life and to give us uh, give it to us abundantly. And in order to experience that, we need to stop playing the Game of Thrones and to submit our lives to Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to step off your heavenly throne. You came into this world and among other things you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that we will be living that reality out in our lives, that we will choose to willingly submit to you. We do confess, Lord, it's hard because our world pulls us other places. Our our sinful nature wants, wants to do things our own way. But, Lord, that's not where there's life. And So, Lord, help us to become more and more resolute in that passion to follow you and submit to you in everything. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will enable us and empower us to do so, that we will live crucified lives, crucified with Christ, so that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us and through us. And we pray these things for his glory and in his name. Amen.